Hello, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have the inestimable Max Kaiser on the line, who is the inventor of media derivatives and who has been, I think, vociferous, insistent, and sadly, as is often the case with the truth teller, largely unlistened to. And he has some fantastic original and somewhat mind-blowing thoughts about uh, the causes and current uh, situation within the Greek financial meltdown. And um, uh, thanks so much for taking the time, Max. Now, you've talked about the financial situation in Greece being very similar in the year 2000 as it is now, but with the help of investment banks such as Goldman Sachs, they were able to hide the financial problems that they were having, which have unraveled uh, since the credit crunch late last year. I was wondering if you could talk, I guess more than late last year, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how they managed to sneak all of this debt into the EU and what you think is going to happen from here. Right. Well, uh, we know that um, Greece has said that their debt-to-GDP ratio is in the... uh, 12 to 13 percent range, and uh, the the objective is to bring that down. Uh, the Maastricht Treaty, uh, when they created the euro, states that the company uh, countries jet, the debt to GDP can't be over three percent. Now, for for uh, Greece to get into this euro, uh, they needed to hide billions of dollars worth of debt. So the man from Goldman Sachs shows up, and uh, he creates uh, some synthetic swaps using uh, what they an accounting methodology that they used. Uh, they they make the reference to um, artificial exchange rates. Uh, they simply created exchange rates that were based on nothing but um, just basically phantom numbers. Uh, they created phantom accounts. They hid uh, billions of dollars worth of debt. They made it appear as though the GDP ratio to uh, to debt was acceptable. They snuck. Greece into the euro, and during this period of time, <clears throat> the past ten years or so, you've had, you know, still the the, the last ten years of the twenty five year bull market that started back in the early nineteen eighties, and uh, starting, of course, in the year two thousand and seven, you had the collapse of the twenty five year uh, bull market, and you had the collapse of the credit markets, and now we've systematically seen uh, a lot of countries and countries exposed for the fact that. They are basically, uh, you know, if you would liken it to a chain letter, these are the people, or a Ponzi scheme, these are the people who came in late who are going to uh, have to suffer the consequences, while the people who started the Ponzi scheme, like Goldman Sachs and these other banks, of course, make out very well because they, are, they were in early. Right, right. Now, people seem to think that the decision point is whether in the future, I guess in the short-term future, the EU should pump up. Uh, the Greek currency or give them uh, money. But to my understanding, that's already happening because the EU is, uh, is buying up Greek debt, is monetizing the, uh, the Greek debt. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that through the bond sales. Well, I mean, the only way out of these uh, problems is going to be through uh, growth. And um, you can't have growth without jobs. And uh, you can't have jobs without savings and capital. And um, the only solutions, really, that the EU is putting forward to stimulate growth is to increase their debt burden. You know, this worked for 25 years. Anytime that there was a, a, a burst in the bubble, whether it was long-term capital management, which involved Russia and uh, some other countries, or whether it was the savings and loan crisis going back, really, all the way back to the beginning, or whether it was a dot-com crisis or the subprime crisis, uh, every single time you had a bubble burst, the net aggregate debt levels increased. And Wall Street got very good at hiding the debts on special purpose entity accounts, off-balance sheet accounting, 
uh, using credit default swaps, synthetic credit default swaps, and they kept this Ponzi scheme going. And so uh, the question of um, whether or not Germany is going to bail out Greece or if they're going to come to their rescue, the entire Eurozone, like the entire globe, is suffering from multi-trillion dollars worth of debt that um, is crashing the entire global economy. And there's really very little growth coming from anywhere except for maybe China, which is feeding into Australia. But this China um, growth is highly illusory as well because they're just building all these phantom cities out there in the middle of China uh, without any way to sustain that growth. So at some point, they're going to have to uh, probably, to avoid a huge economic dislocation in China, they're going to have to abandon the support of the dollar, let their own currency rise, give their uh, domestic population some purchasing power with their local currency, and uh, try to uh, make it on their own without having to rely entirely on that vendor financing scheme that they've been perpetrating with the U.S., basically lending Americans right. money vis-a-vis -vis the bond market to buy cheap goods at Walmart so that they can build up China's export capabilities. So right. uh, there, is no, there is no solution in terms of the Eurozone. There is no, there is no bailout. There, there's no money. They're, they're completely bankrupt. The banks in Europe are sitting on many times their, their, uh, their, their capitalizations in debt. There's no money. There's no, <laughs> right. there's no money. Now, if, if I'm going to put myself in the German Chancellor's blouse for a moment, uh, fortunately, there's no video for this for you. But um, if, I'm, if I'm in Germany's shoes, I'm sort of, I'm torn between two courses of action. If I bail out the euro, then, uh, sorry, if I bail out the Greeks, then that helps me to continue to borrow. Because, of course, if Greece goes down, it will pull down the euro. On the other hand, Germany is a huge net exporter, so if the euro goes down, that's very beneficial to their exports. So do you have any thoughts on which way do you think they might go? Right. If, if in fact, uh, the euro is, is on the uh, de decline, uh, Germany, as a huge exporter, reaps the benefits from, from a falling um, euro. But you know, to revisit the first half of your question, you talked about they, they're in a position to uh, facilitate their, their, their borrowing. But the, the point is that uh, you, you were, we're heading toward what uh, Hyman Minsky called the Minsky moment. This is when the interest on the debt exceeds the GDP uh, of a country, in this case, the globe. And you go into a massive deflationary debt implosion. So there's not going to be any borrowing because uh, you're, you're talking about uh, financial Armageddon, basically, and there's no way around it. But you have to accept it and, and start to look past this 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 fact of economic life and, and decide how you want to come out through the other end. But there's it's impossible to avoid at this point because you look look in the US, they have put in trillions of dollars, 13, 14, 15 trillion dollars of fresh credit into that economy and it's still uh, money velocity is still close to zero. Uh, you still have unemployment rising. You still have GDP now rolling over and going negative. House prices are back to going negative. Because all that thirteen trillion just went off was a down payment against the twenty or thirty or forty trillion in debts that are still in the system that haven't been figured out how to be paid for yet. And right. the, the U.S., if you were to mark to market the entire indebtedness of the U.S., including the unfunded pension, the unfunded uh, Medicare, Medicaid, you're talking about a hundred trillion. Right. Right. Oh, it's completely, I mean, the existing paradigm of how to run countries is, to, to my mind, is completely dead and gone. And now we're just going to pick through the bodies and see what we can bring back to life. Now, another thing that uh, I would like you to, to talk about a little bit, 
if you could, as you've used the term uh, financial terrorists. And uh, of course, to people who get the 10-second snippets, that seems all kinds of extreme. Uh, to those of us who've delved a little bit more into the details of the IMF and some of the um, confessions of an economic hitman approach, this stuff was used to work in the third world, where you would uh, lend money to the government and then end up gutting the government and privatizing a good deal of the public assets for the fund and profit of private interests. This seems to be uh, creeping northwards or creeping from the third world into Europe. I was wondering if you, if you think that's a viable way of looking at it, and also if you could talk a little bit more about why you use the term economic terrorist to, to refer to the lending institutions that have facilitated or enabled this debt. Sure. Well, the, the term terrorist is usually associated with fanatic, religious, extremists, violent, murdering um, um, individuals who are suicide bombers or kamikaze pilots. Now. Um, Let's talk about Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Cantor Fitzgerald. These are people that are, they, they, they believe in um, adherence to scripture in a, in, a, in a theocratic, fanatical way. They don't observe the Koran. They observe Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Uh, they take a very select reading of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. They look only at the chapters that they think apply to them. Uh, and they ignore the rest, similar to what a fanatic in a religious fanatic would do. Uh, in a religious fanatic, or, or that is some, that uh, has gotten the, no, the the term terrorist, believes that they're doing God's work. Uh, recently, uh, um, Lloyd Blankfein, CEO of Goldman Sachs, told the world he believes he's doing God's work uh, because he's a religious fanatic. He believes he's he, he's a, a, a fanatic uh, follower of a very select reading of of the tenets of capitalism. Uh, as a result of this uh, fanaticism, he engages in what I call suicide banking, where he destroys himself and his uh, and others. The Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns were, were an example of suicide banking, where bankers are blowing themselves up uh, to conform to this theocratic belief uh, in, their, in, the, in their belief, in, as they see it, in God. And the results are the deaths of innocent civilians, uh, whether it's a uh, people who get blown up by bombs or planes, or in America, you've got 45,000 people dead last year uh, because uh, they don't have uh, the health care uh, needed for these people because that money was given to the religious fanatics on Wall Street uh, who, who needed to pay themselves their Christmas bonus. So you've got the deaths, you've got suicide bankers, you've got religious fanatics, and you've got, uh, it's a direct parallelization. That's why I call them financial terrorists because that's what they are. Right, and, and you could say that's any more descriptive and accurate than that. And of course, in Greece, the hospitals at the moment are running on what is called, of course, emergency only, which means that people aren't getting the health care, even those within the socialized medical system, which is inevitably going to result uh, in deaths. So, and, uh, and, and who, why? Why? Because Goldman Sachs, a religious fanatic, uh, in 2000, and then in 2009, they tried to do the same thing. They came in there with their uh, their holy book, The Wealth of Nations. And they, and they proclaimed that to either you're with us or against us, you comply with our corrupt accounting methodology, or, you know, you have all hell to pay. And, and this is exactly the same thing. It's not, you know, I mean, this is the parallels are, are exact. But what is the what is the end game? This is something I can't really understand with these institutions that lend all of these all of this money to governments. Uh, and of course, in, in what they're really buying is the enforced uh, tax revenues of future citizens. But it's not like they're going to go in and replace the government with their own entities. 
And clearly the governments can't sustain it, the, uh, the economy can't sustain it, the current tax base, even if everybody magically complied, can't sustain it given the demographic boom that's about to hit the retirement and, and medical schemes. But what is the end game of these banks? Are they looking at just, I want to get as much money out of the treasure room before the door of reality slams shut? Is there some other thing? Are they looking to take over governments? What is the end game to lend all of this money to governments when they clearly can't pay it back? Well, you have to look at this really in the context of what of the whole history of of um, neo uh, classical economics, uh, the Enlightenment, and the transition uh, really in from medieval times to uh, what we call enlightened or the age of reason, and the whole birth of uh, neo classical economics and 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 uh, this whole idea that free market capitalism can be a mechanism for uh, distributing uh, wealth in ways that reward uh, merit and hard work. That is being destroyed, and we're going back to basically a feudal system, and you see this happening right now with the concentration of wealth, uh, which is becoming, in America anyway, uh, the, 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 we've never in America ever had a concentration of wealth disparity ever in the history of the United States. The 70% um, of the wealth now is controlled by something like one half of 1% of the, of the country, and this is just getting more pronounced every month going forward. So eventually, what the end game is, you're talking about most Americans are going to be in prison, uh, performing slave labor, prison labor. Already it has the biggest prison population in the world, and that's a huge manufacturing base in America is in the prison population. They get paid 50 cents a day. Uh, you're gonna and and basically everyone else is going to be living in Sherwood Forest. They're going to be out there in no man's land without any support whatsoever. And the smart money, like let's say John Paulson, who's a hedge fund manager, who who made money on inside information trading, subprime debt, betting against it, they've been aggressively buying gold bullion. John uh, Paulson now owns as much gold bullion as many countries own. He owns uh, uh, I forget how many tons exactly. But he is uh, one of the biggest players. Paul Tudor Jones, very famous hedge fund manager in Connecticut, is heavily buying gold as well. Uh, China just announced they're buying, uh, they're doubling an, an, a huge more gold position. India just bought a huge gold position. So the smart money is basically taking all the derivatives and the phantom illusory um, paper and they're converting it into hard assets like gold. And they're allowing this thing to collapse and coming out the other end. You're going to find that 99.9% of the wealth will be controlled by, you know, maybe five or 600 people around the world. And they'll, it's back to feudal times. It's feudalism. You know, the, right. the rich, so, the aristocracy, the monarchy, you know, they never really liked the whole idea of a middle class to begin with. It was very inconvenient for them. Right. You know, they, they prefer to live in a world of lords, monarchs, and serfs, you know. So right. uh, here's their chance, and they're taking it. So if I understand you correctly, so then the people who are in control of the fiat currency are essentially shorting the fiat currency. In other words, they're going to make money when inflation hits. And they're also transferring the fiat currency into gold, real estate, other hard assets, which aren't going to inflate in the same way. And in fact, as the inflation hits, the value of gold, of course, should, should go up relative to a dollar, right? Well, the value of gold is going to go up uh, whether you're talking about deflation or inflation. It's going up right now during a period of deflation because the purchasing power of all these fiat currencies is declining and that's why the price of gold is going higher once you have this minsky type moment and you've got this hyperbolic nosedive into a debt collapse uh then okay you're going to have i suppose hyperinflation 
And, and then you see gold, of course, performs well in that environment as well. Um, so th th this is, there's nobody is stopping this from happening. You know, obviously, if there was a, if there was an attempt, for example, Barack Obama, when he came into office in 2008, if he wanted to do something that would have been beneficial for the people who voted for him, he had two options. If he wanted to do something that was beneficial only for the bankers, he had one option. Now, we know that the option that he took was he bailed out the creditors. That is, he bailed out Wall Street and uh, he perpetuated this nightmare. The two other options he could have done were A, he could have simply nationalized the banks, ring-fenced uh, ring all the bad debt into like a resolution trust corporation uh, like was done during the Savings and Loan Corporation, fired all the crooks, the charlatans and the financial terrorists, and started the lending cycle again. And uh, this is one, would have been something he could have done. And the economy in America would have been stabilized and growing at, at right now. Or the second thing he could have done was instead of bailing out the creditors, he could have bailed out the debtors. So in other words, at that time when he took office, all the mortgage debt in America, all the credit card debt in America, when he added it all together, it worked out to approximately 11 or $12 trillion. Well, he could have simply paid everyone's mortgage and credit card debt in one day and just said, everyone's house is fully paid for, everyone's credit card is fully paid for, start the ball rolling again, start their lending again, and, he, and the, the economy would be growing right now, and he could have done that. He could have done that as well. So those are the two things he could have done. Now, why didn't he do either one of those two things? Because he's not working in the interest of the American people. He's working in the interest of the bankers. And he did the only thing that would totally screw the people and benefit the bankers. And this is exactly what he did. So there, there is no attempt by the government to do anything that would have done anything beneficial for the general population. This is obvious. This is obvious. It's, it's irrefutable. You can't you can't argue these points. This is what just happened. Right, right. Well, I'm not sure I would agree with either of those two solutions. I would prefer an abolishing of the Fed and return to the gold standard as a way of stabilizing the currency. But again, we're sort of arguing details because I agree with you that he has completely bowed to the banking interests because, of course, the people who are in charge of the banks and the head politicians <laughs> – we we think that it's sort of about nationalism, you know, that the Greek politicians are there for the Greek people, but the Greek politicians are in bed with the bankers, and it's a political and banking class that have much more in common with each other than they do have with their own citizens. And you can see that with the astounding statements of the Greek politicos, which is that they somehow are blaming their people for the debt that they hid from the people and from the EU and uh, well, is now this, bringing this down is, the this country. This is classic Stockholm syndrome, where the people who are being held captive fall in love with their captor. And this is a classic situation. And you see this over and over again. And the Greek people are, are now trying to appease the, the terrorists that are holding them hostage. But um, getting back to the solutions that you're talking about, you know, going back to the gold standard and um, the, the, um, the two-part solution you just mentioned, you know, you're talking more philosophically. What, what I'm saying is that when Hank Paulson goes down in front of Congress and he puts a gun to Congress's head, it, said, it says, give us $700 billion or we're going to crash this market. Essentially, if Osama bin Laden, you know, there's no difference between Hank Paulson and Osama bin Laden, except, you know, the way that the color of their skin. He, right. Osama bin Laden, if he went down in front of Congress and said, give me $700 billion or I'm going to blow up your economy, um, would Congress just roll over and, and, and say, tickle my belly? <laughs> you know, how do I help you? How do I appease you? Can I make you a cup of tea, Osama? Right. Okay. When Hank Paulson goes to Congress and says, give me $700 billion or we're going to blow your economy up. 
Okay. Now, Barack Obama, who's the president, he should have said, you know, he should have said, look, buddy. You, you, <laughs> you, you can swear if American you want. This is like a that. podcast. <laughs> you, you can't say you can't threaten us like this. You can't threaten the American people. We're going to nationalize all your banks today, which I have the executive order to do right now. And we're going to throw all you bums out and we're going to work this out in a way that doesn't hurt the American people. And now that's the solution he had. He had at his fingertips. He could have done it right there. Now, as far as your solution in terms of going back to the gold standard and these other options, okay, philosophically speaking, ideologically speaking, these are sound policies. That's right. But we're not talking about adopting a, a sounder course of economic uh, architecture. We're talking about the fact that America was held at gunpoint by financial terrorists and Obama basically put on the knee pads and and did not do a single thing for his for his uh, constituency that's what we're talking about right right well and uh, i think that we can see because as goes greece so will go north america sooner or later and i would guess sooner rather than later because what you can see happening in greece which is so typical of these kinds of catastrophes is that it's not debt payments that are suspended because who really gives a rat's ass if the government defaults on a national debt? As far as the general people go, it's not their debt. It's all went to other people's pockets, to other people's profits. What they always do, which I think is going to provoke significant periods of social unrest, they always cut the frontline services in order to provoke the citizens into a response and a riot, uh, which I think is a very dangerous game. Rather than cut the debt payments, rather than just default and, and sort of have a ground zero start over, they start cutting things like ambulances and they start closing schools and they start closing hospitals, which inflames the citizenry. And it's the very worst thing that you could do as far as actually helping your people goes, because there's millions of options you'd have on your list of what to cut before getting to frontline services. But they always start with the frontline services, which is a very dangerous game to play, in my opinion. Well, it's not like they're, I don't think they're consciously cutting frontline services. I think what they do is they simply don't, when the, when the, when the payments come in to pay for these services, they just throw them in the garbage and they pretend like nothing is going on. They just abandon their responsibilities. Now, um, you know, Greece, why, why are we talking about Greece as being the inflection point for all this? What about Iceland? And before Iceland, what about Chile? And before Chile, what about Argentina? You know, right. this has been going Mexico. on for 20 years. Mexico. What about the uh, Asian financial crisis? What about you know, this has been going on for 20, 25 years. Now, suddenly it's in Greece. It's on Western Europe's doorstep. And suddenly this is a new and exciting and, and threat. No, it just means that the crusaders, uh, the financial terrorists have are getting closer to the Bundesbank, which is basically, you know, the the is is the mother load of 6000 tons of gold. You know, they want Bundesbank 6,000 tons of gold. John Paulson wants the Bundesbank's gold. Paul Tudor Jones wants the Bundesbank gold. They want that 6,000 tons, they're, and they're moving in on it. You know, they don't care who dies and the, who they kill. They're, they're terrorists. Okay, right. How, you know, terrorists kill people. And what's the objective? Gold. They're, they're going for it. Right. And I think it's fairly easy to say that people viewed Argentina, Chile, and Mexico, and the Asian stuff, and even Iceland. It's like, they're not us. They're not like us, in a way. They're foreigners. And of course, Iceland is just three people on an ice cube. But now, of course, you're right. It's, it's moving into, in a sense, this Western conceptual homeland and, and coming to Europe. Now, you've said that this, this latest bubble is going to play out for about two years. So I was wondering if you could give us uh, the fast-forward or not-so-fast-forward version, if you have the time, of how you see this uh, crisis playing out over the next two years, or this, this domino series of crises? Well, there's a, the, the, there's, there's a, the, of course, there's always the, the hunt 
the search is always on for the next bubble. Because when you when you create a bubble, you know, it's a bait and switch. You know, you can it, it covers a lot of sins. <clears throat> and you know, we've gone from bubble to bubble to bubble. It's bubble economics. And the bubbles get bigger, the collapses get bigger, the bailouts get bigger, the debt loads get bigger. But there's always been a way to invent a bubble that will that will cover over this this problem. And I think we may see yet one more huge bubble over the next 24 months. And if you look at the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, the people who brought us the Commodity Moderniza Modernization Act of 2000 that opened the, uh, the way for all of the problems since 2000 and the collapse in 2008 and 2009, they've, they're, they're in the process of approving a new financial product, box office futures contracts, which will allow individuals to speculate in, with futures contracts on future box office. So huh. Avatar is a movie coming out, Avatar 2, which will come out in two or three years. People will be able to speculate, borrow money, and speculate on the success or failure of Avatar 2. Now, uh, the, uh, Hollywood is a, a, the box office is a $10 billion per year uh, industry. That's your cash flow. That $10 billion can be used to spend at least $500 billion to $750 billion worth of these derivative products. And these derivative products are going to be distributed throughout the known universe. Anybody who is interested in celebrity, Hollywood, tinsel, celebrity TV, um, reality TV, you know, all the, all the stuff that we hate about contemporary culture, this is all being now securitized. So if right. you hate all these really bad TV shows and really bad movies, they're all being securitized into futures contracts available at the click of a mouse to speculate on the on the success and failure uh, going forward. And I believe if you combine this with social networking, uh, you know, Facebook now has 400 million users and there's 80 million of them on a thing called Farmville, which is growing vegetable, uh, you know, virtual vegetables for virtual money. And that <laughs> virtual money is going to be convertible into, you know, uh, buying and selling virtual box office futures contracts. You know, you, you've got the whole makings of this huge of a huge bubble that will give the people the illusion of wealth uh, until that bubble bursts. And, uh, and, and that'll probably be the end. And I, I think it's, it's a fitting uh, epitaph for America to have the last and final bubble burst in Los Angeles, in the, in the center of Hollywood, because this is really the, the nexus of, of, of all that is rotten in the state of America. And, and so this is really, for the next two years, it's like, it's not economics, it's, it's really more like anthropology. Because <laughs> you see the whole mix of Wall Street and Hollywood, you see this coming together. People are uh, completely have no resistance to this celebrity uh, nonsense, and they're gonna they're gonna be beg borrowing and stealing to get their you know twenty bucks on a bet based on some future Tom Cruise movie. And this the Commodities Futures Trading Commission is really, you know, they 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 really should be shut down because for for approving these products. And I know having invented the technology that runs this new platform this new, what's called the Cantor Exchange. I know that um, when I designed it, I designed two or three different ways to manage that uh, exchange. Uh, one uh, ranging from very, uh, what I call the, uh, the, the weak uh, to the strong um, um, uh, method in terms of the weak version of the technology is very loose 
between the conflict of interest of the broker and the dealer, because most of the market making and price discovery of all these exchanges involves uh, what's called the broker-dealer um, uh, kernel, if you will, of that of that of that system, where the people who are making markets and matching buys and sells are also buying and selling for their own account. Right on the on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, for example, it's very weak, and the market makers are specialists, profit from inside information all day long. And that model, if you look at Goldman Sachs high frequency trading, for example, it's a way for them to co-opt what's going on in the New York Stock Exchange and to be the buyers and the sellers of high frequency trading and take advantage of the fact that the, the market making capacity is extraordinarily weak because there's no regulatory policing of the market making uh, mechanism on the floor of the exchange. Now, my technology, the virtual specialist technology, you can set that market making tech, uh, mechanism to tight or you know very strong so that the broker-dealer conflict is eliminated. But from what I've seen on this new exchange, the Canner Exchange, and from the uh, CFTC, uh, they're not going to use the, the best version of this, the tight version, the iron version. They're going to use just more of the same, very weak market-making technology, which is easy to manipulate, easy to trade on inside information, uh, and you're going to see a wholesale raping of the American public once again, and they're going to be like moths to the fire because they all are going to be sucked in by the magic of Tinseltown. And it's kind of going to be fun to watch because, um, you know, I mean, it's like watching a whole generation getting wiped out in, a, in, in 18 months. I mean, I, I, I just can't, uh, throughout history, I don't think there's ever been an incident, an, an incident like this where a whole generation wipes themselves out uh, based on their own um, venality. So it'll be interesting, I think. And I think that'll be the last bubble, though. Now, if you could just tilt your camera forward a bit, I just want to make sure I get your chin as well. Uh, and I'd like <laughs> if you could uh, close off and, and you, you know, I think I can still see your face through well-justified moral spittle, which is great. And I, I really do appreciate this. And you, you touched on something very interesting, which was the, the culture, uh, the culture of, I mean, of course, the ancient Roman technique of, of, par of uh, pacifying the serfs with bread and circuses is alive and well in some of the junky entertainment that is going on uh, in the world. And you had, I think, a very insightful comment, which I'd like you to expand on, if you could, about the degree to which you see uh, media culture driving this hysteria, where you will get, in a sense, a financial wipeout when fiat currency meets virtual currency, which is two abstractions fighting out over the corpse of the body politic. To what degree do you see the media playing a role in um, distracting people and, and keeping them sort of satisfied with the sort of silly puzzles and humiliating entertainments of reality television and away from the real issues of the time? Well, you know, just to repeat what you just said, I mean, it's exactly right. Fiat currency meets virtual currency, and it, it creates a, an amalgam that is going to destroy what's left of the economy. And um, the role of the media, of course, is instrumental. When I started on Wall Street back in 1983, I remember that the prospectuses that were forwarded around to the brokers and, and, and the bankers there was uh, rules, for example, you couldn't have color photos on, on, the, uh, on the red herrings because they might be an inducement to uh, purchase the security. Hmm. Uh, now, flash forward to CNBC and James Kramer, uh, who's on the idiot box, uh, turning uh, like Home Shopping Network meets New York Stock Exchange. And think of all the money. Think of all the people James Kramer has bankrupted over the past 10 to 15 years. No, I mean, he has, he has lost more money for more people over, the, over that period of time than probably Stalin. You know, he, he is totally destroyed 
uh, net, the net worth of millions of people. I mean, he was basically giving the marching orders into, through this recent five to seven trillion dollar wipeout. So now imagine a thousand James Kramer bloom. And every, every TV network has a James Kramer who's going to be peddling Hollywood box office futures contracts and mixing it with entertainment news and a social networking site. <laughs> right. I tell you, it's going to be something. It's going to be something that's going to be fascinating to behold. Now, what, you, what is your advice? I mean, I know that this is a tough question to ask, but for people who have less than stellar incomes, what would your advice be for how they could best prepare for the financial dislocations, to put it mildly, that seem to be coming down the pipe over the next few years? Well, you know, I don't really offer advice, uh, you know, investment advice, um, really, because um, that's not what I do. And there's the, the variations out there are extreme. You know, everyone's situation is so different. And you really can't give a, an answer that would that that just makes sense. I mean, beyond uh, the fact that, as I've been saying for the last eight years, for the past eight years, all I've really mentioned at all has been gold bullion. That's all I've talked about. And it's averaged a 21% gain per year uh, in, in dollar terms, which is, uh, I believe, outperforming Warren Buffett. So I mean, it's been the most successful, consistent investment of the past eight years. And that's all I've talked about. And uh, once again, in 2010, I would say it again, gold bullion in a world of fiat currency meets virtual currencies and with an impending, you know, cyber uh, nuclear fusion of virtual fiat airsots cream pie currency madness you know i mean obviously you want to have the thing that the monarchs are going to have at the end at the at the other end of this so um gold bullion uh you know beyond that um you know it, it, people have to make their own choices it depends on how, what their value systems are some people have different value systems and value different things and and it's impossible to to say how how that's going to play out culturally. You know, uh, back in the 1960s, you know, you had an interesting um, cultural shift in the United States where you had a generational um, uh, break where the the new generation coming up really became very anarchistic and they dropped the drug they took you know, took drugs and and um, they. They 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 redefine. They try to redefine that culture, and it it was a complete split that you you know you really couldn't have predicted five years before. Remember, five years before that, it was still very Lawrence Welk, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave It to Beaver. You know, then within five years, you had 1969. You had you had um, an amazing cultural transformation in a very compressed amount of time. And I think ultimately we're going to go through one of these again. And, you're, and what comes out out of that is going to be very, very interesting. So the whole values will change. Cultural values will change. The cultural artifacts will completely change. Uh, people, uh, you know, and, and, and the good news is that usually during these periods, the cultural artifacts are, are greatly improved. So the music of the 60s is great. The art of the 60s is great. You know, we went from the art uh, of the 60s we went in then to the uh, disco period of the 70s oh. which was a bit of a uh, like a dark ages and then we went into the complete slumber period of the reagan in the 80s where things really went into like a dark ages and but over the past five or six years now there's a percolation there's a bubbling up in the cultural zeitgeist now and i think that 
you're going to start to see some people rise up who are going to uh, redefine the values and culture. And so in that, re in that regard, it is, it's exciting. And so for this reason, when we talk about the collapse of this bubble economy, um, the good news is it's going to bring in something very exciting, culturally speaking. So if you, if you value culture and art and um, humanity, uh, this is a welcome uh, end to a 25-year neo-feudal capitalist nightmare. Well, I think that's admirably put, and I just wanted to point out, though I won't necessarily put these words into your mouth, but uh, when you talk about people who read Adam Smith, I mean, they may read Selections of the Wealth of Nations. They don't read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is a much more important work when it comes to personal integrity, which is really what's lacking, I think, in, in many cases in the world. And the other thing that I would mention, too, that banks, um, sort of semi corporate mercantilist banks lending fiat money to other governments is the complete opposite of the free market as Adam Smith uh, envisioned it. And in fact, he consistently warned against cartels and the collusions of big business and government as being the opposite of voluntary and free exchange of value. It is not the free market. And I believe that through this cultural shift, we're either going to rediscover what voluntary transactions really mean, which is not government coercion or subsidies or national debts or any of that sort of nonsense, which is straight out of, as you say, feudalism. We're either going to rediscover voluntary exchange or we're going to lose it completely. And I think that the work that you're doing, uh, to some degree the work that I'm doing, is trying to help people remember that there is a real black and white line between voluntary trade and all of this uh, theft through inflation, fiat currency, uh, the selling off of future generations through national debts. That has nothing to do with what the free market is really all about, but it's really to do with an overtaking of a kind of imperial colonialism of the voter through very powerful statist and corporatist forces, which are, which are not operating in the free market for a variety of reasons. And I'm not going to say you can agree with all of that, but I wanted to put that opinion uh, out there so people could at least sort of get where I'm coming from if they watch only this video of my series. <laughs> well, I, I would, uh, I, I, I will agree with what you just said. Uh, and, um, what, what's gone wrong is, is um, the system of incentives. So what we've seen since Adam Smith's day is a bastardization of the incentives offered in the economy. In Adam Smith's day, the incentives were that um, uh, individuals would have the right to compete and compete in ways that rewarded hard work and merit. And in, in the year 2006 and 2007 and 2008, we've got a system that incentivizes larceny uh, and incentivizes theft. Uh, and, it's and the winners are those who are stealing the most. So this has nothing to do you know, with uh, what, what the whole system was about to begin with. Right. I mean, Ayn Rand, I think, identified it quite well when she talked about the difference between the aristocracy of merit and production versus the aristocracy of political pull. And we're really shifting towards the latter. But I think that the game is relatively up now. And I think people have the chance to look at something new. Now, I really do appreciate your time. I'd really like to, uh, to give you the opportunity to give your uh, contact information, your website and so on, so that people who are interested by your rapid fire, very fascinating uh, and occasionally tangential, not that I'm one to complain, uh, thoughts can pursue your thinking further. Yes, of course. Well, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, basically, maxkaiser.com, we'll, uh, that's K-E-I-S-E-R, is uh, the hub around which there are a few different spokes, including our various TV shows on Russia Today, Press TV, 
and other uh, outlets. Well, thanks, Max. And I appreciate you holding the mainstream media's feet to the fire when it comes to describing what is happening in Greece and other places. So thank you so much for going out there and speaking the truth. And I hope that you get more than 10 seconds at a time to explain your perspective. But thank you so much for doing what you're doing. All right. Thanks. All right. All the best. Bye-bye.